So that's affirmation. Last week we looked at biblical foundation for all that, talking about core truth, secondary truth, essential doctrine, secondary doctrine. We didn't say that anything in God's mind is unimportant, but He does seem to give a clear strata of things that must be believed in order to know the true God and things that we should believe because God, you know... Two opposite perspectives can't both be true. But those secondary doctrines, if you will, that Christians, truly regenerate Christians, sometimes disagree on, uh, but we need to have biblical footing for why we stand where we stand, what we think, what we think. So last week we, last week we looked at the biblical foundation. Today we're going to look at uh, a little bit of church history on Article 15, um, Spirit of this Affirmation and Unity of the Church. And the first thing is beliefs that are essential for salvation. What have people who lived before today thought about the concentric circles? The tighter you go in on the target, what is in the bullseye of what you must believe in order to be a Christian? So if you deny anything inside of that, you're outside the bounds of the Christian faith. I'm not sure what you would put in that circle, but let's just do a little class participation. Uh, What's one thing that has to be believed in order to be saved? Just do popcorn around the room. One way to salvation. Say it, pardon me? One way to salvation. There's one way. (coughs) Deity of Jesus, one trying God. What else would you put in there? Resurrection. Say again. Resurrection. Resurrection of Jesus. Absolutely. Now, God hasn't written us a systematic theology book, right? Like page 24 of his book is not the seven things that go inside the concentric circle of what must be believed in order to be saved. But from Scripture, lots of brothers and sisters throughout church history have thought about that have searched scripture to try to be Berean. What does the Bible say? What does it teach? And I just want to highlight a few, not exhaustive, but the most core of the core, and it's all the things you guys have said, I haven't listed them that way, but the affirmation says, we do not believe that every part of this affirmation must be believed in order for one to be saved. But there are some things in it you got to believe, according to scripture, in order to be saved. We believe that that is true. So, Let's just listen to a few friends from church history say it. The Westminster Catechism, from which the Grace Church Catechism has stolen unapologetically, and a lot of other catechisms, are tasting the truth that you're going to hear in just a little while, is uh, borrowing from Westminster. These are our Presbyterian friends. Question 33 asks, what is justification? This is Westminster's answer to that question. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's a, it's a mouthful of good theology, but it's the great doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, only through the instrument of faith, which cannot be a work, 
delve into Westminster's answer, faith is the empty-handed receiving of all that God is for you in Christ. It's not a giving anything to Jesus. It's a receiving all that God is for you in Christ, the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus on the basis of faith alone. Westminster would say is the only way someone must be saved. You, you, you may not be able to explain that as a newborn Christian, but church history would say you have to believe that. That you're not earning your salvation by praying your sinner's prayer would be a kind of common vernacular way to put it. Rather, you're receiving the gift of grace through faith. All right, Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe you've heard of that one. Fantastic uh, catechism in church history. Question number 60. How dost thou become righteous before God? How are you saved? Maybe a common uh, modern way to put that question. Well, their answer to question 60 is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Then they explain. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned, nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And finally, all I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. So that's Heidelberg's way of saying sola fide, faith alone. Same thing Westminster divines explained. Similarly, 39 articles, this is of the Anglican Church. I think this may be, somebody in here may know if this is accurate or not. I think this is Southern Baptist Theological Seminaries, where Al Mohler is, statement of faith. Anybody know, can refute that? It is not their statement of faith? No, it is not. Abstract of principles. Okay. The 39 articles of the Anglican Church is Article 11, the justification of man. How does it happen? Answer. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith, and not for our own works or deserving. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Let's see if I had a note there. No, it's on the next one. Okay, so the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, 100% owing to God's gracious work for us in our stead in Christ and that we are uh, the recipients of his imputed righteousness. That's a core doctrine. Now again, you don't have to be able to explain that to be saved, but you certainly cannot deny that. Now there are entire branches of Christendom that deny everything I've just said. Turn grace and faith into a work. Meritorious righteousness instead of imputed righteousness, freely given on the basis of faith alone. Our brothers and sisters in church history have helped us think about this. So the things in our elder affirmation accord with what saints through the ages have also held as precious and many have spilled their blood to pass them down to us. Okay, so not only beliefs essential for salvation, but the affirmation said something important about the role of Scripture, the Bible, in the church. 
In 15.2, our aim is not to discover how little can be believed, but rather to embrace and teach the whole counsel of God. That's a statement from Ephesians chapter, I mean Acts chapter 20, where Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I'm free from the blood of all men. I'm innocent from your blood because I did not shrink from declaring to you anything profitable, and he taught the whole counsel of God. He explained, best he could, all that God had revealed of himself. So you guys may be familiar with uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, what was the big holiday here in the good old U.S. of A? Halloween. Yeah, better known as? Yeah, in good church history terms, uh, we would call it All Saints Saints Day. Right? So what what happened on October 31st, 1517? There we go. Uh, Some of our classical school education kids can sing the little jingle. Right, uh, the moms who heard the mantra over and over can sing it. Uh, October 31st, 1517, uh, German monk, Martin Luther, 95 Theses, door of the church, Wittenberg, Germany, sparked what we now call the Protestant Reformation. And so later, uh, about a decade later, he was called to account for what he had been teaching. What he had been teaching is what the Westminster, Heidelberg, and 39 Articles just said. He had been teaching justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, on the basis of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what he had been teaching for about a decade. He discovered that in the book of Romans, go figure. And this is what he said when he was called to account. This is concerning the place of Scripture in the life of the church. You guys are familiar with this. Uh, he was standing for the, the Diet of Worms, Worms uh, in, in uh, Worms, Germany. Stephen Nichols says, Luther was called before the highest authorities of his time to answer for his teaching, April 1521. He came before Emperor Charles V, various other officials of the church and the state in the city of Worms, Germany. On the first day he appeared, people witnessing the events that he spoke so quietly that everyone had a hard time hearing what he was saying. He was waffled a bit, explaining that he needed time to consider his answer, which outraged his opponents who understandably felt that he knew full well what he was coming to Worms to do. But the emperor graciously granted his request for 24 hours to consider his response, which had to be given in person and orally, not in writing. Luther came back the next day, April 18, 1521, He spoke much more confidently, and his demeanor was said to be that of a changed man from the day before. Luther rose to a crescendo in his remarks and asserted that only the clear testimony of Scripture should determine matters of such gravity in the church as the eternal welfare of the uh, immortal souls of people. Only the clear testimony of Scripture should determine matters of such gravity in the church. Nichols goes on, nothing else would do, but if anyone would demonstrate to Luther where he had erred in his interpretation of Scripture, he would himself burn any of his books with any such errors in them. But still, Luther had not answered the crucial question, do you or do you not recant? The Roman Catholic Church and imperial officials were getting quite fed up by now, Would Luther recant his writings and the errors in them or not? From every reliable source that is available to us, we are absolutely certain 
Luther said the following words. Many of you know them. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scriptures and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Well, Luther died 25 years later, February 18, 1546. Just before he died, he preached a sermon from his deathbed in Eiselben, Germany. The sermon was the quotation of two verses of Scripture, one from Psalms, one from the Gospels. Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up God is our salvation. And then John 3.16. God so loved the world. Whosoever believes in Him, everlasting life. God is our salvation in Christ. That was Luther's testimony, boldly died of worms and his deathbed sermon. God is our salvation. And that's because he believed that that's an essential doctrine based on Scripture that one cannot deny and be saved. That's what our affirmation of faith is also asserting. Um, skip that. I'll come back if we have time. Uh, 15.4 also highlights the place of Scripture in the church before I go to our next consideration. We do not claim infallibility for this affirmation. We are open to refinement and correction from Scripture. Yet we do hold firmly to these truths as we see them and call on others to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Maybe you know that our affirmation of faith can be found on our website, but if you go all the way to the bottom and click the little PDF, the affirmation is like five pages, just the text, the way it's formatted. If you click the PDF, the scripture footnotes that are listed all throughout the affirmation is like 40 pages. And so these things, I don't think, are just made up out of thin air. They have deep biblical rooting, and if somebody could show us, oh, you're misunderstanding what the Scripture says, we'll joyfully change our mind. But not willy-nilly based on whatever the latest cultural trend is. We need Scripture to guide the church. Okay. Um, number three, the vital necessity of good doctrine. I said last week we're all theologians. The question is, are we a good one or a bad one? Are we a biblical one or kind of subjective relativists? You know, I, I think it's good. I feel like it's good. So the vital necessity of good doctrine. Point two says we believe doctrine, Scripture doctrine, stabilizes saints in the winds of confusion and strengthens the church in her mission to meet the great systems of false religion and secularism. Today's uh, catechism from the world is if it feels good, it's right. Right? God, would, God loves you too much for you to ever go against whatever you feel is best for you. Scripture demands that everyone deny themselves. All people. Everybody, to come to Christ, you have to say no to self. Nobody's exempt from that. Now that's why Tozer would say things like biblical doctrine stabilizes us in the winds of all this false religion and secularism. That's why Tozer would say Every man's greatest need, you guys know the sentence, 
is a greater view of God. If you see Him truly for who He is, you'll see yourself for who you are. And the cross, for as gigantic as it is, uh, another systematic theology uh, intro says, every error of faith or action can be traced back to a deficient view of God. So every wrong thing Jordan Thomas believes, every deficiency in my doctrine is inextricably connected to my wrong view of God. I need a more biblical, more accurate view of God for my life to more accord with his word. Okay, so uh, the point is the vital necessity of good doctrine. Charles Hodge, uh, I affectionately refer to, you guys know all these people as my old dead guy friends. This is, this is one of them. His three-volume systematic theology, I think is as good as any contemporary theology I've seen. Hodge said, I want you to think about this. First, all truth must be consistent. There's the age-old mantra from people who probably haven't read the Bible. Not all, but many who say what I'm about to say. It contradicts itself. Well, that accusation usually comes from people who haven't read it. They've cherry-picked a couple verses that sound dissonant instead of reading it in context. Hodge is saying right on the front, all truth must be consistent. God cannot contradict himself. He cannot force us by the constitution of the nature which he has given to us to believe one thing and in his word command us to believe the opposite. He's saying scripture is consistent because God's nature necessitates that. And second, all the truths taught by the constitution of our nature or by religious experience are recognized and authenticated in the scriptures. This is a safeguard and a limit. Contemporary version of that, you can't say God told me so and that contradict what the Bible has said. And if God did tell you so, it will be verified by what the Bible has said. Okay? So... Charles Hodge, uh, that's his systemat. He also went on to say, we cannot assume this or that principle to be intuitively true. Is it true because you feel like it's true? Or is it true because you know the Bible says it's true? Um, we cannot assume this or that principle to be intuitively true or this or that conclusion to be demonstrably certain and make them a standard to which the Bible must conform. What is self-evidently true, Hodge said, must be proved to be so and is always recognized in the Bible as true. Whole systems of theologies are founded upon institutions, so-called, and if every man is at liberty to exalt his own institutions, as men are accustomed to call their strong convictions, we should have as many theologies in the world as there are thinkers. At the end of the day, you either get truth from inside of you or outside of you. And making yourself your own God happens by you becoming your own standard of truth. And God has spoken. That's why Isaiah said, uh, Isaiah 8.19, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony, to Scripture? 
If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. I mean, this is totally... I mean, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was born, but this is our day. Right? What does your favorite pundit say is true? Just consult them. If the latest, greatest podcast say it was so, well then, it must be so. Shouldn't people ask God what He thinks? Let's go to the law. Let's go to His testimony. Let's see what He said. Otherwise, people have no light. They're in the dark, no dawn. All right, two more, and then we'll have some time for interaction, I think. Uh, Treasuring the Christ of Scripture. It's a dangerous thing to know the words of the Word and not the God of the Word who's spoken them. We should know the first, but that should lead to the second. That's what this says. We believe that a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ, is sustained in an atmosphere of deep and joyful knowing God and knowing His work in history. That is, knowing Scripture will lead to treasuring Christ more. This is uh, Matthew 24. I want you to think about this because I have a question about today on the basis of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Jesus said, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, or ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. One of the previous slide earlier in the passage said the elect will not be led astray. In fact, the last days will be cut short so that they not be. But he said what would happen as time draws to a close is there would be more Christs. People would say, there he is. No, there he is. No, he's over there. And the true Jesus straight up said, do not follow them. So you've heard me say it before, but it's on the basis of this passage. The question is not, do you follow Jesus? The question is, which Jesus do you follow? There's a lot of false Jesuses. The Jesus that lets you live however you want to, go to his heaven when you die. The Jesus who's not so serious about the church, for which, Acts 20, 24, he shed his own blood. There's a lot of false Jesuses. And you can make up one in your own imagination, or you could follow the most popular one of whatever your contemporary culture says about him, or the Jesus of Scripture. And so we're on a we're on a mission here, and many, many other churches in church history, and today, even in our city, are on this same mission. Who is he? What is he like? And if you don't want the Jesus of the Bible, you wouldn't want the heaven that he brightens by his own glory. The one security that we are following the true Jesus is to be people of his written word. The word written testifies to the word incarnate. The Jesus of scripture is the one true Jesus. Church history has a lot to say about that. And then finally, maintaining a teachable spirit. Uh, That's what that 15.4 is all about. We're not infallible. Maybe some stuff in this affirmation is wrong. 
We just want everybody to search the scripture, see if that's what the Bible actually says as we interact with each other, not excoriate each other, anathematize. Oh, you believe something different? Banish people to the fifth level of purgatory? No, let's talk, let's search scripture, let's be humble. Maybe we'll adjust what we think. We'll change our mind. Maybe we'll come to a a place of agreement and say, you know what, we both hold this one thing to be biblically faithful. So Charles Hodge again, um, this is where I'll close. The Bible is not a system of theology. No more a system of theology than nature is a system of chemistry or mechanics. We can find in nature the facts which the chemist or the mechanical philosopher has to examine and from them to ascertain the laws by which they are determined. So he's saying we get chemistry and mechanics from all these laws in nature, but the Bible's not just a like a manual of theology. He's saying the Bible contains the truths which the theologian has to collect, has to authenticate. You have to arrange them. You have to exhibit in their internal relation to each other. This constitutes the difference between biblical, our next sermon series is going to try to do that, sing God's story, and systematic theology. This is lesson 44 of systematic theology. The office of the former, biblical theology, is to ascertain and state the facts of Scripture. The office of the latter, uh, first is biblical, this is systematic theology, is to take all the facts of the Bible and determine their relationship to each other and other cognate truths, as well as to vindicate them and show their harmony and consistency. It's not an easy task or one of slight importance. Like I said last week, I'm going to say it again next week in our final lesson, you are a theologian. The question is, are we a good one or a bad one? Or better, are we a biblical theologian? Or are we just subjective, moral relativists? Your standard of truth is either inside you or outside of you. I commend, Scripture commends, this church commends, get a standard of truth that's fixed, not in you, outside of you. Stable, unchanging, the immutable God, same yesterday, today, and forever. And base your judgments of what you think and what you feel on what God has said. This immovable rock doesn't shift when the winds blow, when the waves come, when the floods rise, just the same. You can be rooted when life happens, when you have a big, solid rock, the God of the universe, to stand on. 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Well, just a little bit of uh, our brothers and sisters have thought about role of scripture, history of the church, good theology. All right, we have a little less than 10 minutes if we want to do some interaction, some additional feedback, thoughts. What you guys got? Is this like the perfect time of day to have class in a dark room so that everybody just takes a nap right in the middle of the session? In fact, Mike, we flip that light right beside you? Perfect. <coughs> Questions, feedback, uh, additional insights, encouragements to the 
saints. So you pose the question, what, what does one have to believe to be truly saved? Is there an established list? I don't know. I know only because I've heard of it that there have been documents written. Mm -hmm. I think it's the ECT, stuff like that. that you know, some said, uh, we, we need to embrace, we need to embrace our Catholic yeah, yeah. brothers and sisters. So I guess yeah. the question is, is there a list? Is there an established requirement? Yeah, it's a good question. That That is an exercise I would encourage all of you to do for your own self with your Bible open. Um, never from a class in college or seminary uh, or even an elder assignment have I tried to codify that list just from personal walk with the Lord. I have tried to. I've even, I'm irrecoverably visual, so I've even done the bullseye. What is almost essential, but just right outside that, what are those most periphery things about which Christians can disagree? Um, the answers that came from this room, I think, all fit inside there. Uh, there's a few more. I don't think you have to say this in your gospel presentation. But let me give you some examples of things that I think fit inside of there. And here's why I would say you don't have to say this in a gospel presentation for someone to be truly saved. They're essential to salvation and they must not be denied once discovery happens. That's why I'd say is the Christian life through and through. A true Christian won't know all truth. Nobody in here does. But when you, when it, when you are exposed to truth as a true Christian, you embrace it. That's what happens. So it feels like conversion all over again. You're not getting saved again. The virgin birth, absolutely essential. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Human depravity, fallen world, necessitate that. Um, you know, vicarious atonement. So the virgin birth uh, would fit in there. What's another one that you guys may think of that wasn't said already? Christ was fully Yes. Yes. Two natures, not Gnostic, true humanity. Yeah, it's essential. Yes, I'd say try to do that exercise. Um, Advent season is upon us. Maybe now to the end of the year. Make that your ambition. And see what you would push into the center and what you might say, oh, it's so close, but I'm not exactly sure it's... If you deny it, can you still be regenerate? Yeah, good question. Does anybody know if such a list just is out there from church history? BJ, you know anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. But is there like a one, two, three thing that you can think of? I can't think of anything like that. Okay. Good. What else? We have a lot of churches. And, you know, if, we, if you were to ask them, they would say, well, we're based on the Bible. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, how do, how do we view that and say, all right, what, what we're saying here is what we understand from the scriptures, but Presbyterian brothers and sisters may say something different, Pentecostals may say something different, Methodists something different. So, what do we say to that? I think there's tons of regenerate Catholics, tons of regenerate uh, mainline church attending people, but it's in spite of what they're told, not because of what they're told. I also think there's a lot of unregenerate people in solidly, I'm going to say this is solidly Bible-believing type churches. There are unregenerate people in those churches. It's also in spite of what they're told. There's enough gospel in a uh, year's worth of Roman Catholic liturgy that God can take the meat, somehow cause people to forget the bone, and cause them to be born again. But that's not a validation for why theology is unimportant. That's actually an argument for why it's just so vitally important. It's easy to be deceived. Um, so the reason I answer that way is because I, I think one, y'all have heard of cage stage theologians, right? That's why I answer that way. It's so easy to anathematize everybody who doesn't agree with you on everything. It's actually spiritual immaturity, even if you're right about the thing that you're talking about. God has his thousands who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. He always has. And truth I mean, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is of utmost importance to the God to whom you belong if you're regenerate. So you would care about things God cares about, and you'd want to know his thoughts. Pastorally, one more comment, and I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to call on a few people, see if you've got some additional thoughts. Pastorally, this is why we say that. I didn't used to think this way. I don't think I say this because I'm a pastor. Only, certainly included, I think it's top three decisions of your life. What church are you going to belong to? Who are you going to marry? Where are you going to live? What church are you going to belong to? I mean, I would put church above what school you go to for college. I would find a church, then find a school. I would put it above what job are you going to take when you're offered the big bonus. Is there a good church in that city? Like it's so it's going to guide, for better or worse, your diet. I mean, the food you put in your body governs a lot of your health. It's the same way spiritually. And I don't think there's too much being said or too much ink being spilled about the vitality of just God's ordinary means of grace, just simple biblical truth washing the souls of his people over and over and over again. That's God's recipe for spiritual health. Prayer, word, people. You and God in the Bible, you and God in prayer, you and God in a church. You got those three things, you're going to be pretty spiritually healthy. Um, yeah. All right, Derek's one of the people I'm going to call on. Uh, you think a lot deeply theologically. Everybody here knows that. Um, what's one thought you got in your noggin based on today's talk? Um, what? to 
one thing that should be encouraging is when I, I did my master's and we were doing theology, our systematic book that we used was Calvin's Institutes. So that means that we took a book that was written 500 years ago and used it to teach students on how to handle the scriptures faithfully today. And what was honestly the most shocking to me from his institutes um, was despite the stereotypes that get attached to his followers, Calvin was unbelievably charitable to those who would disagree with him on doctrine and emphasized love for the most wayward and ignorant of the brothers amongst the church. And that really, really messed with me and had a a profound impact. Um, And so to that extent, and to answer this question, or at least comment on it, I think a lot of times when people draw attention to why are there so many different disagreements, um, I think it's important to separate those things which decide whether or not we are or are not saved versus those things that affect how we organize. Um, It is good for us to be separate when we don't agree on how we organize. That's a good thing. Um, But where we agree is on the essentials of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians, if anybody preaches a different gospel, let him be a maximum. And so the difference between us and a Presbyterian is not on the gospel. It's on how do we organize the church and to whom do we administer the sacraments. Um, And so when I would look at a a Presbyterian or um, a Pentecostal, maybe we would disagree on the continuation of spiritual gifts and what that means, but we're not disagreeing over the gospel. However, if a Pentecostal began to argue that the absence of spiritual gifts means that I am not saved, now we're talking about a different gospel. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that would be my thought. (coughs) Super helpful. Those lines of organizing ourselves differently have actually served in God's wonderful providence the propagation of the true gospel. Because there is not a denomination or branch of Christendom that hasn't had some subset of it go astray. But it's the fidelity of the remnant within each of the evangelical branches and their disagreements over secondary issues that have actually served the propagation of the gospel. That's why we say our Presbyterian friends, our brothers, our sisters, they're preaching the exact same gospel down at Second Pres on Poplar that you're about to hear in this auditorium. Um, That's good. Okay, we're about to adjourn. I'm going to tell you in the event you don't make next Sunday, which is our last session here, what will happen after that. Uh, There will be no grow during December, but I believe this room will be available for our fellowship time. We will always gather at the same time. Same was true at Greenlaw, same will be true at Redeemer so long as we're here. Uh, So this room will be available. I think we're going to fire up um, some decaf coffee, because if you're like me, about 10 years ago, you stopped being able to drink leaded after lunchtime and still go to bed at night. So I think we'll do that. This will be available just through the month of December for conversations, encouragement, build relationship. Maybe uh, the same would be true in the auditorium, but stay tuned for that. So one more week of class. Did I mention last week we're going to start uh, hermeneutics, how to read scripture? That'll be all of next year. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, yeah, I could say more, but that's that. All right, let me pray, and then you'll be dismissed for our service. <clears throat> Father, thank you that the 
the cluster of people in this room represents so much difference on the spectrum of some have thought so deeply and carefully, way more than me, about some of the things we've been talking about. And some are brand new to that conversation and the significance of it. So I pray, Lord, that young and old, men and women, you would cause us to grow up together in a family, a, a local church family, into the truth of your word so that we may know your son more, honor him more, love him more, be more useful to him in his service. We want to know that Jesus you have sent, who is revealed in the pages of Scripture, caused this church to be built on Him, according to His Word, and help us to help each other to that end. Uh, wherever we're at, to take one step closer to Christ, to trust Him even in our current circumstances, because of Your sweet, faithful revelation to us in Your Word. Make us a church like that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.